Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to the June 2015 podcast. This baby is on cinematography and all things concerning it. We have a wonderful group of questions that you have all submitted. Let's get started. Here we go. First question from Pratt. I want to shoot a film with my iPhone 4S. I've downloaded some handy apps that will be helpful while shooting. All my shoots would happen at night. It's very guerrilla style affair. I'll be the only one shooting. I want the final output to be in black and white. My biggest concern is lighting. I don't have extra hands helping me out with this project. Any tips, suggestions would be vastly appreciated. All right. Well, shooting on your iPhone 4S... I imagine this is the future, except with a nicer piece of glass. I think that we are going to be continue to shrink our camera systems and being able to enable them to work with a wonderful piece of glass is really the future and where we're headed. Right now, we still have a bit of fan technology and cooling and memory and all that stuff that's a little bigger now, but it's all going to be shrinking down. So shooting it on your iPhone, I like the, the handy apps that you've downloaded. That's all cool. Black and white is a great way to go. It kind of hides a lot of the color imperfections and funky lighting color temperatures that you walk into. Interiors lit with a lot of tungsten light, and but outside is very blue street lights of, of all different color temperatures that look kind of funky and weird on the face. In black and white, they kind of blend into a bunch of beautiful whites and grays and charcoals and blacks. So I think that's a good way to go. Tips. You know, you want to kind of find yourself in lit environments. Obviously, the iPhone 
iPhone 4S is not the greatest low light camera. So you're going to want to set yourself up for success. If you're shooting at night, you want to be in lit areas on streets. The simple bringing a little bounce card out is going to fill in faces. So if there's a lot of top light coming down from street lights, you're able to bring up a, a slight exposure with those and dig into the eyes so you can get that emotion and get the performances of your shooting this film. If you're one person shooting this film, then obviously you have some actors in this piece. And I would have when there's not both actors or three actors or four actors, if somebody's not in the scene, then this person could walk around and assist you with using the bounce card. You know, when you, you think about back in the days of me making small documentaries and also just having to go with, with very minimum, the bounce card with the sensitivity of these new sensors and your iPhone S is not so sensitive but it is very reactive to light. So if you get in a lit environment, it gives you a pretty damn good image. Trying to find light and shadow. That is what black and white photography is really all about. All cinematography is light and shadow. So it's setting up those areas where you can have a dark background and the person might be lit from the side or even frontally lit, but they're separating out because there's darkness behind them. And if it's top lit, you bring in a little bounce card to be able to get some light in their eyes. Or if they're backlit, you're able to fill them in. Camera's going to auto adjust. So you're going to want some fill on the face without it looking like a nuclear holocaust behind them. So there's these little things that you can do to kind of uh, help with the process. And another thing is negative fill, which is a black card that you can bring around. And if there's light that's coming in that really flattens their face out or flattens the image out in general, you can hold up, Christ, I've done black bed sheets, I've done t-shirts, I've done whatever it takes to, to have somebody just hold that up and block that light. So you are able to increase the contrast and deliver an image that is very pleasing to look at instead of very raw, unless this is the concept that you want to go for, which is very raw. Uh, there's sometimes when all these mixed light coming in from all different angles can kind of work, but I think it looks like shit, so I would never do that. Those are the kind of things I would always try and shape it in some way because I find that an image that's flat and uninteresting is an image that's flat and uninteresting. The other thing is there's some great stabilization apps for your 4S. I know Instagram has one app, Hyperlapse, it's called. You record in Hyperlapse and it looks like it's going like six times the true speed, but you can slide it all the way over to just one times, which plays it at real time, and it stabilizes the image. I mean, it looks like you're shooting with a movie. I've never seen anything like it uh, for your iPhone, and it is absolutely perfect. You know, it zooms in on your image just ever so slightly to be able to stabilize it. And your image is a little softer, but these are the things that that enable your iPhone to feel like a movie and move in ways that are very stable and don't take you out of the movie because your camera work is very shaky with this very small device. All right, moving on to question number two. Shane, I would love if you can offer your insights about the cinematography and lighting used in the movies End of Watch and Nightcrawler. How would you go about replicating the look in these movies? Edil, 
from Singapore. I loved End to Watch and I loved Nightcrawler. Robert Ellswit is a very good friend of mine. He did Nightcrawler. He actually called me up because I was shooting with all the Canon C500s and he really loved the look of them at night. So he said, Shane, who did all your night work and all your team? I would love to employ them because I haven't used the C500 and who do you have? And I said, well, Chris Mosley, uh, who's actually doing Into the Badlands with me, he's shooting the second unit. I said, he would rock that out. And they basically took the whole need for speed crew over to do uh, a lot of the well, the whole massive chase sequence for Nightcrawler was all done with the C500 and my team from Need for Speed. All the helmet cam, all the night stuff, slow motion, flip over, car chase, filmotechnic, all of the uh, Russian arm car, all that stuff was basically the, the Need for Speed team reunited to be able to pull that off. And Robert uh, came down to the set, my team told me, and he was just watching them move because he had never seen so many cameras being deployed so easily and so simply. So that was kind of a testament and a pat on the shoulder for me with that because I think Robert Ellswit's work is unbelievable and he's a, a huge mentor of mine. So seeing him and watch the team that I had kind of put together and was able to really bring to fruition that feeling of just driving at night with no lighting and just being really visceral and very raw. So End of Watch was much different. Nightcrawler had the aspect of the video camera, obviously, with Jake Gyllenhaal and that kind of perspective. But End of Watch was a lot of these cameras, small cameras embedded in basically t-shirt and uh, cops badge areas and everything and walking around and a lot of uh, very small, intimate camera placement and very kind of low tech cameras that created that multi-format feel. And that's truly that kind of style was very unique. And I loved the feel of it on End of Watch. And it was a different perspective of a cop thriller. That's what I really loved about it. And that perspective was very unique. I don't think there was much lighting going on involved with that because the camera was constantly spinning around 360 degrees. Those type of movies are, are really about picking great locations that are lit and being able to use available light and shooting them at the right place in the right time to be able to use that kind of style. When you're not at the right place in the right time and you don't have lit scenes that are either naturally lit or are lit enough for your cameras to expose an image, it gives you the ability to really move around and have the camera feel like you're with them. And, and the restrictive of movement is not reduced. I think back when I was doing Into the Blue and you're like, how is this related? And you got end of watch and now you're going underwater. Well, it's the same kind of approach. When I tackled Into the Blue, I obviously called a lot of underwater cinematographers and uh, I had never shot underwater before and I had hired Pete Zuccarini who was my underwater director of photography but I had asked so many people DPs that had done it or used underwater people and they described the way they shot underwater was they went down to the bottom they pulled their fins off and they panned and tilted 
and I go, uh, okay, so am I incorrect here? And we're in a liquid environment, right? And they're like, yeah. I go, so why aren't we a helicopter, a technocrane, a dolly? A mo- why aren't we just going all over the place, spinning 360 degrees and on top of them and drifting down below them and spinning around? And they're like, well, you got all the lights and cable. I said, there's not going to be any of that. So I specifically lit everything practically. If it was the treasure hunting boat, then I had all the light coming from the treasure hunting boat from above. If they were down dark, then they were lighting and using flashlights. Everything was based on practical lights and being able to move that camera in ways that you've never seen underwater feel because I didn't go to the bottom and I didn't take my fins off. End of watch is very much like that. It is the camera is very visceral. It's very a part of the story and you immediately understand the emotional content and it takes you on the journey with those two officers and you feel emotionally involved in their families and I I just thought it was a wonderful, unique film that I thought was very well done. Doing that, it's specifically that way is right place, right time, right environment, right practical lights, and being able to let the camera move and breathe the characters and their emotion. Moving on to question three. Since I see that you are very resourceful on the EOS system for LUTs. I would like to ask if you have some red LUTs to apply at red footage directly to Red Cine X Pro. Thank you, Gene. Your wish is my command. I have developed some amazing LUTs for the red. The output coming out of the camera, I use the red film log. So that takes that nasty green out of it and is a very nice log file. And then you apply my LUT to it. And I have done three series of LUTs that are available in Shane's store. And we're going to be offering the first round of LUTs to all the Inner Circle members this month, which will be the skin tone and the neutral bundle of LUTs for the red. It works very well with the dragon and with the epic, and it really gets you in the ballpark and gives you a wonderful image that you can light with. One thing that I have found specifically on Into the Badlands, and it's been an amazing experience because coming from the Canon C500 and the EOS platform, I cannot light without the camera if I'm doing Canon because it is such a counterintuitive device. Anything that you think is too dark is too bright. Anything that you think is too bright is way too bright. Anything that you think is not exciting and looks flat as hell is interesting. Shooting two movies with that camera system and coming from film, it is very counterintuitive sensor. And I can see why just using it enough and really trying to embrace the EOS system full wholeheartedly and understand that it has a lot of limitations and but it has so many other positive things to it where you can go with very minimal lighting. The one thing that's been wonderful for me on Badlands is that I am able to light just like I lit with film. The way I lit all my films is with strength. 
and with strong, strong sources. You know, very much inspired by Bob Richardson and the way he lights. And I finally have found a camera that can really react to those extremes. And the Red Dragon is just knocking it out of the park. I don't need the camera at all. If I was doing Need for Speed, I could not light a scene without the camera being up and me seeing it on my Flanders Scientific and starting to light the scene. With the dragon, I never have the camera around. I walk in and I start lighting like I lit film. All the relations, all the aspects, everything about it is spot on 35 millimeter film. It's unbelievable. Now I'll go back to the monitor. I'm like, oh yeah, that's a little, little too dark. Okay, let's add this. Or, oh, that's a little too, you know, it's like little finessing is what I'm doing. I shoot that camera at 320 ISO, even at night. And that's what's been so rewarding with this camera system is that it just works so well under these extreme conditions which is the way I light, with a lot of light and a lot of shadow. I was talking to a director in an interview yesterday, and uh, he said, I don't see it a problem you lighting very dramatically. <laughs> I just started laughing my ass off and said, uh, yeah, cool. All right. Wonderful. So that's the whole uh, gist of this is you now have these lookup tables that are based on the red and you're able to get inside my creative space of how I like to light. What is the best advice you can give a filmmaker on a micro budget? What is the bare minimum to get a good cinematic look? How would you rate the importance of the following factors? And how can I design the story and the production to keep the costs reasonable? Production design, costume, hair and makeup, camera and lenses, camera movement, grip and lighting, locations. I have uneducated guesses on most of these, but I have no experience with the first three in the list. Thanks for sharing your experience with us, Rob. All right, Rob, production design is a huge factor in creating a cinematic look. If you have sets that have no intricate detail, if you don't have the subtle nuances of aging and textures and good color palettes, you will not be putting together a very cinematic piece. In regards to hair and makeup, this is something depending on your project, like what we're doing on Badlands. I mean, these guys are getting punched. They're getting hacked up. They're getting, you know, the, the specific makeup that's required to be able to pull off this vision. So the makeup and hair teams are very essential. This is a futuristic feel. So a lot of the costumes and everything has to be so spot on and so good to really put you into this world. Well, that's not going to happen with not good hair, makeup, and wardrobe teams. So that's a, a, another very strong point. The camera and the lenses and the camera movement, I would say these are your top three. Production design, costume, hair, and makeup, and camera and lenses. Camera movement, grip and lighting, these type of things, obviously they're very important. You can still deliver a great product with shooting with a still camera. 
I mean, I think Active Valor is a perfect example of taking a Canon 5D Mark II and shooting with still lenses and being able to deliver a product that is cinematic, that's emotional, and that really takes you on a very unique journey. The other thing is you mentioned locations. Now, grip and lighting on the Active Valor, I didn't do a lot of it. A lot of it's natural light, right place, right time. Camera movement, didn't have cranes, didn't have a little techno cranes, didn't have all that stuff. It was A lot of it was handheld, very minimal dolly. So that's still delivered a cinematic look. Locations are huge. I would say production design, locations, costumes, these things, everything that you've mentioned is obviously very important to telling your story and, and delivering the most cinematic look. Let's take Fathers and Daughters, for example. I had a very abbreviated prep. It's the shortest prep I've ever had on any movie. Three weeks. And I walked into a wonderful experience with Gabriel Muccino. He had been down boots on the ground in Pittsburgh, finding all these locations, and that guy has an amazing eye. There's not one location that I saw on my first week being down there that felt wrong, that was not set up for lighting and camera and storytelling success. Production design team, the hair and makeup and wardrobe, everyone was just top shelf. And we had an incredible experience on, on that movie. And I only had three weeks to prep it. That was the help of this incredible director who did his homework. He did his shot list. He picked amazing locations. So when I walked into, I was like, oh yeah, I can light this. This is perfect. Yeah, where do you want him to go? Do you want the camera to move all over the place, spin around, go down there, drop down, swing around, and come into a close-up? Yeah, I can do that here. I can rig from above. There's plenty of rigging. The ceilings are high. It's like he had totally set me up for success to be able to deliver this movie. Locations are a big deal because a lot of times you have to do less work if you have a great location, and that's truly what it's all about is making the efficiency. You don't have to have more man days to rig stuff. You don't have to fight the location to make it look good. All these type of things filter in to prepping a movie and dealing with it with what you do with every movie is time and money. The more difficult a location is, the more man days you need to throw at it, the more your budget goes up. Everything just exponentially increases. So you're always trying to find that location that is as user-friendly as possible, that gets you in quickly, that saves man days and gives the director more time for performance. Next question. Hi, Shane. Great post on The Greatest Game. Looking forward to more IC content. Great idea. Well, thank you. For each scene, you had the Condor High School shot, the cottage, and the warehouse. About how long did it take your grips to set up? How much was pre-planned versus on the day? Number, that's our one question. Number two, three 18Ks plus all those 6K space lights is a lot of firepower. Yes, it is. Were you shooting a pretty slow stock? Absolutely. If you were shooting that same scene with the Alexa or the C500, C300 at 800 or 850, would you go to smaller instruments? No. Say M40s or M18s? No. And how do you know before the day how much you'll need? 
gut or photometric calculations based on instruments versus distance. Thank you, Dan Rubottom. All right, Dan, we'll break this down. I gave you a little very hyper answer to all the questions. <laughs> all right, how long did it take you for the grips and the electrics to set up? Well, they rigged that location in two days, the store location. So we're talking about the one where Harry Varden is up on stage and he is blasting the golf ball into the net and young Francis Wimette finds him. We had a day to cable that place and a day to hang all the lights above. Then I came in with the units that were the 18Ks that were there and we moved them around and shaped them and formed the windows window light and all that stuff for that sequence. It was a two-day pre-rig with, I'd say, probably four crew members on each side. So you had four crew members on the grip side, four on the electric side, pre-rigging it for two days. And yes, it was all pre-planned. I wanted it to feel like this warm top light coming from the department store and then this mix of beautiful hard sunlight that was racing through the interior. So that was definitely the plan of attack. 318Ks plus the 6K space lights, a lot of firepower. Yes, it is. I shot 250 daylight balanced film stock in there. So it was 250 daylight. So the tungsten lights went very nice and warm. The HMIs had just like a whitish, coolish quality to them. You know, I had to pump in a, a good amount of light into there to uh, to get it at 250. If you were shooting with the same scene with an Alexa C500-300 at 808, would you go with smaller instruments? No. The reason being is a Fresnel 18K looks like no other light. It looks like sun. And anytime you use a smaller source, it just doesn't. And I'm playing with this right now because I have the 18Ks blasting through windows. And then there'll be that time where I'm like, okay, blast that 4K, you know, the Airy M4 in the background. And it doesn't deliver the nice shadows. The M40 series, the M18s, the M90s, they aren't like these par lights, right? So they have this really cool reflector that make it, makes it incredibly efficient, but delivers not so good shadows. And by doing that, you get three repetitive shadows with the way the reflector works on the M40 or the M18. If you set a topper to assimilate sunlight coming through a doorway or whatever, and you set that topper, you will have three topper shadows, where if you have a Fresnel, you will have one, and it looks the most realistic. So no matter how sensitive the camera is, I'm using 18Ks. If you wanted to step it down, then lighting that interior, you could do it with 4K Fresnels and shoot with the Canon, because you're not going to have the latitude of film, so I'm not going to be able to really glow Harry Varden like I did up on stage and streak the light across the people, you're going to have to go with taking that down so it doesn't look so video. Something that was really a mind-opening experience for me was the Illumination Experience Tour. Because what I was doing is I was taking the C300, the C500, and I was trying to emulate the look that I had done on Swing Vote and Crazy Beautiful and the Rat Pack. And I couldn't do it with those cameras. And it gets back to the question that I had talked about earlier, is because it's such a counterintuitive 
camera. Having 12 stops of latitude, and it's truly not 12 stops, it's more like 10, is basically very difficult to light. But having 15 and a half stops with a Dragon or 14 stops with an Alexa, you can get ballsy. You can get really strong with your sources and it looks and feels how I light film. And then any night exterior work, I would shoot with the Canons because they still own the night and you're able to use all the sources and everything outside and it feels very rich and very inviting and very real. I'm going to be still using these big lights that everyone says are shrinking on set. Uh, they're not shrinking on mine. Okay, how do you know before the day how much you'll need? Gut or photometric calculation? Most of it is experience-based. I was a grip and then I was a gaffer before I was a director of photography. So I really knew the lights that were required and how, how much output these lights give you. And so that is based on experience. There are times when I do go to photometrics, when I'm setting a light that's got to be two, three football fields away, I need to know that I'm at least going to get somewhat of an exposure at that distance. And having the the ability to use photometrics and these nifty apps that I have on the blog that can give you the photometrics of any light and all the manufactured lights, airy, mole, all them. You can really do some great calculations to understand three football fields away with a 18K full spot, what that exposure is going to be, and also the, the area that that full spot light is going to be. What's it spread from for three football fields away. So these are the calculations that I go to a lot and not just pull on my experience because a lot of times you don't usually do these type of things. So I have to go, refresh my memory. Okay, if it's three football fields away and it's an 18K, I think I'm going to need two. And sure enough, I did. We put two 18Ks in the basket, full spot, three football fields away, and bam, I had my two and a half for my backlight that was required. Yeah, that's kind of how I, I roll out is much more by experience and then going to photometrics every once in a while. I hope I answered your question. Moving on to the next one. Dear Shane, could you please expand on the issue of creating a color palette of a film. How do you choose colors and textures for scenes to achieve good contrast and depth? Thank you, Edward Silma. Well, every film that I do usually has a different color palette, and that's really generated in together with the director, the production designer, costume, and the director of photography. These four teams really design the look and feel of the movie. Take example, Fathers and Daughters. It wanted to be a very realistic film. Gabriel Muccino wanted to use red in specific places for Russell Crowe to show when he lost it, when he went and had these fits. Red played a, a big part on the walls, like in the bathroom and in specific areas. So we use that kind of color to be able to do that. The social service center where Amanda Seyfried works, we wanted the walls to feel very gray, kind of not very inviting, low rent. This is obviously the social worker. They're working on a very limited budget. These are the kind of things that are required to be able to design that color palette. Russell Crowe's apartment, I wanted to feel very warm and very inviting. There was going to be a lot of different scenes in there that were very depressing and very dark, but I didn't want 
the film to be lit very dark or being lit very cold, very against the grain. So I lit a very warm, very golden film seen through the eyes of this eight-year-old child and not when it was a depressing scene, make it cold and desaturated. When it was a happy scene, make it bright and airy. You know, these were not anything that was going through my head. It was, how can we take this very depressing story where literally you better bring a box of tissues with you to not be a hat on a hat, which is make it very depressing the lighting as very depressing the story. So we made the the story is very depressing and very emotional and uplifting at times. And that look wanted to kind of go against that. So our color palette went against that. It wasn't these very down tones and, and depressing tones. It was very much alive. And uh, the use of color was very prominent throughout the whole film. So picking the color palette and all of these things is based on how the script reads and like Into the Badlands. Into the Badlands is a very futuristic, old history repeats itself vibe. There's color here. This new world that we've not really experienced before is very alive and and it's dirty and it's sweaty and it's dark and it's different. So the colors were taking like a, a red and making it oxblood, taking a yellow and making it ochre, taking a green and making it moss. It's like all these things that we took all the colors and aged them down and threw more age and age and age on all these different colors to the point where they just felt right. It's the palette is really designed with these four departments, the director, the production design, the costume, and the cinematographer really weighing in on all of these items. And you as a cinematographer educating the teams of how you're going to light these scenes. Like uh, I put together a specific look for every room that we're in, every day exterior, every day interior, every night exterior, night interior, everything has a look. And this look you pass on to your hair, makeup, wardrobe, costume design, and they can see, oh my God, he's going golden in here. Okay, good. Carrie Meyer, the production designer on Badlands, he did a perfect color tone for writer's room that I was doing this week, which was kind of this greenish with a ton of age, green, white tone to the walls. So when I lit them golden, they took that tone and that color when I lit, lit them cold, worked with that whatever the tone was. And he said he did that kind of neutral color tone because of all the changes that I was going through day, night, dawn, dusk, golden, late afternoon, early morning in this room. Because whatever I threw in there, the walls became alive with that color. And it was it was perfect. It was a great, great color tone for that thing. Hey, I was wondering if you had any ideas for low-budget night shoots in the woods. Okay, I get asked this question a ton, and I think I've addressed it in several podcasts, but I'm going to keep on addressing it because I get the question a lot, and I think it's worth always telling. And I think I got uh, another one down here about talking about how to lighten the woods as well. So we'll kind of morph these. I'll tell you that other question as well, but we'll morph them into the same kind of uh, experience here. Low budget night shoots in the woods. So everything is obviously has to be generated by the moonlight. There's no other light going on there unless you got a car in the middle of the woods and you can motivate its headlights. If you have somebody 
carrying a flashlight or carrying a torch or carrying a lamp, whatever that, that's your motivation. But at some point, you got to separate them out of the background because just by holding a torch up or a lamp up or a flashlight, the only thing that's going to be illuminating them is whatever is bouncing off the ground, and then they're going to be just walking in blackness. It's putting that depth and that backlight dimension into the background that is going to be your really ace in the hole. And the way you do that is is by just taking the largest light that you can afford and putting it as high as possible so you can three-quarter backlight your scene. And I've done it with the simplicity of one par light on a mambo combo, which goes about 25 feet high, and then put a riser on top of that, which got me to 30 feet. Now, is 30 feet high enough? It's not the greatest height, but it's high enough. Gets you in there. You're going to get flared if you're looking directly into it. That's why I try to do three-quarter backlight so you're not looking directly into the source. Three-quarter backlight means you're putting it off to one side. And then I would bring my fill from that same side as the backlight is coming in. If the three-quarter backlight is coming from the right and then your fill is also coming from the right, then your camera angle is just off to the left. So you have like a nice dark darker downside on the camera left side. These techniques can be used in very many ways. You can but like I said, a par light. You can go with LED technology. If you can't afford a generator and you can't afford a big crew, you can do like a Cineo or an Area 51 light that can power off of a blue shape battery or an Anton Bauer. And you can put that thing very high up in the air, rent an extension ladder and put it up 30 some odd feet and clamp it to a, a tree. Because those lights are so lightweight, you could throw a rope over a, a branch very high and put it on a pulley and and send that up and put little tag lines so you can pan and tilt the light to some extent. I mean, you can get very kind of no nonsense with the thing and, and very simple. Height is one thing you have to overcome to get it so it doesn't necessarily look like the moonlight is on the ground. Stylistically, you can do other things as well if you have the addition of smoke. Smoke is very good in the woods. I use these lawnmower foggers that you can rent for a very minimal fee, like under $100 with the fluid. And it is like a lawnmower. You pull the and you adjust the little petcock and that uh, starts to send the smoker fluid and it heats it up and sends it out and develops a wonderful atmosphere. I did that Terminator Salvation. I've done it on a lot of films using these lawnmower foggers. I used them on the last three minutes minutes. The Vietnam sequence there was all lawnmower foggers. You can take a look at that. I did it on Active Valor when they hit the Costa Rica at night when they go in there to get the CIA agent out. All this was done with just these lawnmower foggers. And that gives you depth and dimension. And when you put your backlight up, now all of a sudden you're seeing a lot more. It's not just one streak that hits some trees. It creates shafts. So, you know, your person doesn't have to necessarily be lit in the foreground because he's being separated by the atmosphere in the background. It's huge to be able to use this atmosphere at night. It really helps with that look. Now on Badlands, I've resorted to doing a lot of different things, uh, not 
always saying that the moonlight is coming from above. I have literally set the thing down on the ground on a stand that's only 12 feet high, hide it behind a tree and blast it down the middle of this row of live oaks and smoke it up so it has this great atmosphere and like the horse comes blasting out of the smoke and rides down and he's all rim lit and separated out by the atmosphere and that light and the things on the ground. There's definitely ways and you unique ways to do these things that you don't have to always limit yourself to having it very high if it fits your story. The other thing is the motivation of just other light. Like I was talking about, if there's torchlight or lamp from a campfire, firelight, if there's flashlights, whatever that may be. And then I try to use china balls that you can also get battery powered that I put up in the air and that becomes the fill in the foreground. And it's very useful because it's so beautiful. It's soft and it flies everywhere, which is what you want for your fill. So you can see, I'm not a big balloon fan. I think the balloon just flattens. It goes everywhere. So using that as a moonlight source just looks very flat and uninviting. I'm more with the big backlight or the small backlight rigged up into the trees with this small fill. If I can afford a bounce then I would put a 12 by 12 and punch a light into that so the source is even bigger. But if you have to go very small and battery powered, then you could do 30 inch china ball or a 40 inch pancake that you put on the end of a painter's pole that you can get 15 feet in the air and walk with the people if they're walking through the woods or if they're just there, you can set it in a stand. But these are the kind of things that I do to work on a lower budget uh, shooting in the woods. Next question, why filming car scenes and needs for speed where you would film one action with multiple cameras including gopros mounted on the cars did you film separate wide takes without the gopros or did you just do a single take with all the cameras and angles and then digitally remove any gopros that were visible in the wide shots if you did something completely different what was your approach in regards to shot planning when it came to capturing the multiple of different angles Thanks. That was a very unique way to shoot cars and shoot action sequences. We did use the power of CGI. We put cameras, cameramen, camera women, we put them everywhere. On most of those car uh, accident and crash scenes, there's anywhere from 28 to 37 to 38 cameras all going at the same time. There will be eight crash cameras on the ground that the car flies over or impacts. There will be four operated cameras and they're mostly shooting each other. There's 10, 15, 20 GoPros mounted to the cars that get in the accident. And they are all systematically painted out in CGI. That was the way that Scotty Waugh, our director, wanted this to feel. Because if we had done it the old fashioned way, where we shot a sequence where, you know, the car has its accident, and then we go back and rig all these cameras to it, and then it has its accident again. We were dealing with a lot of cars that were kit cars that were created to look like a Kona 
the SEG or look like a, a Lamborghini. So these couldn't be done twice. If we destroyed the car, it was a one-time experience and we wanted every possible angle on that accident and on that crash. So putting the cameras in places that you not necessarily have ever seen a camera was our mission. And that was the way we wanted to go about this. We wanted people to experience it, not through CGI, where you're inside the car and wrapping around the person and flying out the door and going through the engine block, which is done in Fast and Furious, as well as we didn't want our characters to feel like superheroes, which they could jump from 300 feet, land onto a uh, speeding semi, and catch a woman midair and them not die. This is not a superhuman movie, and we wanted our stunts to be realistic and show the elegance and the expertise of racing. That was Scotty Waugh's mission, and I think we delivered it. And there was a method to the madness. Even though we had all these different cameras, we had to obviously shoot in an order that set up this event, and that's how we treated it. Through the storyboards, we would take the storyboards, and out of the storyboards, I would generate the Bible. And the Bible is this amazing document with my assistants, us designing and putting the storyboards in a shooting order. And out of the shooting order, it would say the specific device, the specific platform, the specific lens, the specific camera, everything was next to that image. So you could hand the document to your camera grip and lighting team and they knew exactly the order that we were shooting and they knew exactly where the camera was going to be placed and they knew exactly what lens was going to be used, which camera, all that stuff. So it really intensified our speed and it was so important to be able to deliver this because we only had 67 days to shoot it and the original schedule was 82 days, but they cut us four weeks before going into production down to 15 days. So we had 15 days cut out of our schedule and we had to be able to make that happen. So it was a lot of weekend work with Scotty and myself and my assistants designing this Bible to make as efficient as possible. We would set up shots where if we were pulling the stunt teams to get them in the pocket, we would pull with the Russian arm. Then we would push with the Russian arm, which is following them from behind. When we went to following from behind, we knew we could put the helmet cam on our stunt driver because we wouldn't see it behind them. We knew we could go with internal cameras as well in cars that we had stunt players in as actors as well as stunt drivers. So we would be able to embed those cameras. So all these things were systematically set perfectly to be able to pull off this vision in a very short amount of time. And then we would get to the event and then 28, 36, 39, I think 42 cameras were the most we deployed at any one time on a main event crash sequence. Dear Mr. Shane, first of all, thank you for Lighting Technique series. I have some questions about your post, The Power of Shaping Light. I want to know, did you use in shooting greatest game film or digital? I used film. What was the ISO in the grand room scene? That ISO was 250 daylight balanced. And my final request, can you please mention in every post 
the camera used, and also the ISO, Hamet. And I, absolutely, we're trying to do that more and more as we really see the request of all the Inner Circle members of what you are all responding for or responding to and requesting. We're trying to address all these things. We shot this with Panavision film cameras. The lenses were very, very old Ultra Primes, Zeiss Ultra Primes that Stanley Kubrick used. They were from the 60s. And they were awesome lenses and really, I think, delivered the great look of the greatest game. My ISO in the grand room was 250 daylight balanced. Okay, next question. As the cinematographer, could you tell me about your relationship with your gaffer? How involved is he or she in the design of the lighting? Do you mostly let them know the look and feel you are going for, then they decide what lights to place where? Or do you tell them more specifically exactly what fixtures you want and where to put them, and they just make it happen? Or is it a combo of both? I guess I would just like to know what your workflow looks like from pre-production on with your gaffer. Thanks, Josh. Well, mine is very different than, let's say, Roger Deakins or Janusz Kaminski, Harris Savitas. They were very gaffer-based cinematographers. They have a very strong gaffer that really helps them with their look and feel. And I came from the gaffing side, so I'm much more into, I know exactly what light I need. I know what the distance is. I know the calculations. I, I tell my gaffer and do all the plots for every scene and every set. I do the lighting package. He never puts a lighting package together. I do even the cable a lot of times as well. I do the whole grip package and I have what I call what Shane likes. And I send this to the grip and gaffer. And it's an amazing tool because you work with so many different people. You know, you're never working with the same people twice sometimes because these tax incentives now, you never shoot in LA. So if you're shooting in New Orleans, then I got a whole new crew down there. If I go to Atlanta, then I got a whole nother crew there. Uh, if I go to Detroit, I got a whole nother crew there. What I've done is I've put this really cool list together, which it's what I like to use. I talk about the circle bounces. I talk about all my diffusions that I like. I talk about the batten lights and how I use them. I also show them the look of what the Badlands, I always put together this wonderful keynote so they can really see the tones and the palette and the composition. This goes to all the operators, all the ACs, all the grip and gaffer and rigging teams. So they really kind of understand the big vision before they get into the nuances of, okay, we're going to lay four out cable down. The, you know, it's like, let them have the big vision. I think it's very inspirational and it really unites a team to say, Say, wow, we're, we're working on something really special. And you always try to up their game as well. They'll bring something to the table and then you say, well, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to do it this way. And it's a way that they've never done before. So it makes them very excited. Badlands were shooting I'd say 97% on the movie. I've done 80% on Fathers and Daughters, but this is full commitment to this device, and it's pretty incredible. And all the operators are like jazzed, and all the ACs are jazzed because they've never used this technology before. They've never seen how efficient this thing can be 
done well and done right and in the right hands to understand how to use it and and get the best out of this system. That process is very important. I'm much more hands-on as a director of photography of putting in every list and every order and every of every light grip, stands, diffusion, everything. Uh, the gaffer is going to put little things in there that I might have forgotten or or things that he likes to use. The grip is going to do the same. I love the collaboration. I, I love to work and have people show me something different. If there's time for it, absolutely. Sometimes there's just, you got to go with the plan and what the plan has been in my head for eight weeks of prep. And I got to be able to go with that plan because I know it's going to be the most efficient. I'm trying to shoot an action piece and an abandoned building where I want a gritty, claustrophobic, high danger feeling. I was wondering what kind of lighting setups you would suggest and support that kind of mood. We have this kind of scenario many times in Terminator. We had this massive abandoned warehouse and, you know, it's all about taking light away. If you're shooting it during the day, then you got to create mood. And most of these abandoned warehouses have a ton of windows. So what I tend to do is I take those windows and I I'll black them and I'll black them with visqueen. And if I want to see the visqueen, I'll hack it up and make holes in it or whatever and have sun shaft through it. So you get this beautiful play of light and darkness. It's all about taking light away in these warehouses a lot of times to shape the light coming from one side. Because a lot of times, like I said, you know, there's windows on both sides of these warehouses. Finding the darkest areas are sometimes not the best unless you have a lot of lighting to be with you because obviously when you go into the dark areas, they might look great to your eye, but the minute you put your camera up and you say, God, I don't see anything. If you're shooting with the Sony a7S or the Canon C500, C300, you can crank that ISO up and you can get some great dimension in there. But if there's no light in general, it's just going to look flat because you're just cranking up the ISO to kind of see. And if you're seeing into the shadows, then it's going to be very flat. So you need edges and rims and hot spots and all that type of stuff to really create this mood and darkness and light. Taking light away and shaping it is going to be very important. Question number two, I fell in love with cinematography of the currently running series Utopia. Season two is very colorful, contrasty look outside scenes two and some very nice framing. How do I have to shoot light if I want to be able to recreate that look in camera and post? Recreating that look in camera and post, I try to do as much as possible in camera. I create that contrast. I create the darkness. Uh, obviously, I've, I have my lookup tables that take the look of that and crunch it down and crush the blacks a little bit and bring the whites up so stuff blows out or whatever. I try to do as much as possible as baking it in. Colors, I try to bake in. Color and contrast. I lit a sequence yesterday where I wanted dusk. This is the way I think of dawn. Dawn is green. Dusk is bluish purple. You can look at it wherever you want the world, but I guarantee you that's pretty much how it all plays out. Dawn has a very cyan feel and Dusk has a purpley blue. I went for a purpley blue. I took HMIs, I put full blue on the HMIs, and then I put half minus green, so a magenta that just slightly purpled up that light. And then I used tungsten lights that were dimmed way, way down. So they were like at 25%. So I think it was like 17, 1800 Kelvin. And the daylight 
or the dusk was 19,000 Kelvin. You had this huge shift, but it looks so cool. This is what this TV show is all about. I'm really pushing the limit in lighting in ways that I've never lit before because that's my challenge, right? I want to do something different. Baking this look in is very important and not trying to do everything in post. All right, this is the final question. There will be thousands of DPs who will be able to say, I was mentored by Shane Hurlbut. Well, thank you very much for that. And he says, thank you so much for doing this. I've been shooting very contrasty commercials lately, and I wonder if I should always have just a bit of exposure in my blacks, even if I plan on crushing them in post. I've tried both ways on this, and I'm still not sure the best route to go. Well, thank you very much with that comment. I think the community that we've created with the Inner Circle is absolutely unique, and I cannot thank all of you enough for your commitment to absolute excellence and sharing so much of your knowledge with everyone. I thank you. And I think we just got to keep getting the word out on this wonderful community and keep on in inviting as many people that want to share in this 20 some odd years of experience and really taking you on a journey through filmmaking and cinematography and lighting do you expose into the blacks? Absolutely. I am constantly lighting a scene and then right before I go, I come in and either bounce something into the ceiling, add something into the wall, whatever it is, I'm always putting what I call a hum in the blacks. If you want to crush it down, it, well, you crush it down. But if you need that detail, if the director, you, you get into the post process and he goes, you know what? I just don't see it this dark. I really want to see a little more detail. Well, it's there. And then if you don't want to see the detail, it's just a simple knob turn. Putting a little detail in the blacks is absolutely essential. I mean, I do it on everything and you can always dial it in exactly, but you're never bringing it back. If you do not have that exposure, that hum in the blacks and you try to dig it out, you're just going to inject a lot of noise and there's just nothing there. All right. What is the process for shooting post VFX work? How do you know a location will work for a VFX shot? How do you light a green screen in daylight and so on? Well, let me take the light, the green screen, the other one's process for shooting VFX work. That's a whole ball of wax that would take a podcast. Lighting green screen in daylight is very simple. You use the skylight to be able to illuminate your green screens and you always put them away from the sun, which makes either everything backlit or three-quarter backlit or side lit, whatever uh, the case may be, but you do not want direct sunlight on the green screens. So I always alter them to be able to always be looking north and that always seems to work for success and gives you the perfect exposure and doesn't make it so bright that everything starts to wrap and sheen and you start to see it on their skin and see it on their clothing and all those other things. So I thank you all for listening to the June podcast and have a wonderful day. If you love what you're listening to here, go to shanesinnercircle.com. It is knowledge that is forged on the set. This is not a classroom environment. This is boots on the ground, immersive learning that you can apply immediately to whatever your skill level is. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. 
That's exactly what happens in our loving film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.